Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. We've alluded in recent episodes to the very significant divergence between bond markets and between equity markets in terms of what they're suggesting the future holds for the economy and investors. And I know that was a little confusing for a few of you because we've had a few questions about that and it sounds quite esoteric, but it really, really matters. So today I'm joined by Evan Lucas from InvestSmart, who has joined us before and always has awesome, insightful things to say. We're also going to get from him a short follow-up on his excellent book, Mind Over Money, which we've talked about before uh, on this podcast and people loved it and had plenty to say. So Evan, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me again, Gemma. It's always great to see you. And I think just listening to your intro there also, I'm probably going to slip the behavior stuff into what's going on in equities and bonds as well, because it's just... It's amazing because you're right to point it out. For those of you that have been going, what is going on? You're not alone. And I also want to point this out very clearly that some of the smartest people I know in this industry are also asking that exact question. So don't feel like you don't know. A lot of people across the spectrum in this space are asking the same question and are coming back with the same thing of this is this is incredibly bizarre about what's going on right now. It's super fun to talk about markets in this kind of environment when there's clearly a lot. You know, the signals are very loud, but mm. they're conflicting, right? That's so, it's so fascinating if you want to step back and look at it uh, in a dispassionate fashion. So talk to us about what's happening. What are the signals that we're getting and which bit's noise? So the signal we are getting from the bond market, which I'm sure your other guests have spoken about before, is, is that a recession is imminent in the States and in Europe, and to some extent here in Australia as well. I mean, if you look at what we call the curve, which is the duration of the bonds issued by the federal government, which is, you know, 1, 2, 3, 5, 7, 10, 12, 15, 20, 30 years uh, in terms of the time durations of each of those bonds, what, you know, the history is showing, it's in the states where this comes, this statistic comes from, and it sometimes gets clouded because it's not necessarily as transferable here in Australia. But whenever the US bond market, the US curve inverts, so where the shorter dated um, bonds, one, two years, has a higher yield than the longer dated, so the five, seven, and specifically the 10-year, it has signaled a recession within sort of 18 to 24 months going back all the way to basically the Second World War. So that's why it's this this thing, and it's signaling that this is what's coming on. It's not hard to make that argument. Um, we know that consumption is supposed to be falling. We've got higher interest rates in the US like we do here. We have supply concerns. You've also had government spending that's going all over the place, blah, blah, blah. So that's why the bond market is saying that. So it's really nervous. The caveat to that and what is going on in the equity market is we've just gone through a US earnings season. And so far, earnings, and I want you to differentiate between earnings and revenue, earnings are still growing. And why that's a problem and what the bond market, and this is like a circle, right? Self-fulfilling prophecy. What the bond market gets really concerned about that is that why earnings are doing so well is because of price. And if you look like the best ones to show you, have a look at Amazon, have a look at FedEx, have a look at even Apple, they all showed that the price of their product, whatever that happens to be, is increasing between 5 and as much as 11%. 
That's inflation, right? That's straight out inflation because revenue in the last quarter updates was actually going backwards. So we are seeing first users slowing down, but the revenue is up because companies are either cost cutting or they're increasing price, getting back to the bond market. The other thing the bond market's thinking about is that what is the US Federal Reserve going to do? Is it going to raise rates further? What's the RBA going to do? Is it going to raise rates further in the short term? The answer to that is yes, inflation is too high. And why I say that, I think what's also not, the word is prosecuted, what is not being prosecuted well enough by central banks because they talk in boffin speak is why inflation is such a problem. And even I have that same issue. I do this as well. The economics is the erosion of purchasing power is the most detrimental thing. Your ability to do what you want, when you want, how you want with the purchasing powers you have is, is the problem. What they need to really say is go even, even lower than that. And what I mean by that is that if you were to keep inflation, which currently in Australia sits at 7%, at that rate for five years, your dollar today, you would need a dollar forty in five years' time just to buy what you want today, let alone all the price pressure that comes on on top of that and whatever else that might happen. Whereas if you have the mandate in the state, which is two percent, or in here in Australia it's two to three percent, in five years' time at two percent inflation, you need a dollar and eight. So one dollar zero eight to keep up with today's price. That is a significant difference. That is why they're trying to slay it. And that is what the bond market's fully aware of, which is rates rising is still very probable in the next 18 months. But over the next three to five years, the probability that A, a recession has happened and therefore economic activity needs to be stimulated, meaning rate cuts are going to happen, is what's happening in the bond market. Now, I know that's a really big roundabout answer there, sorry, Gemma, but that I think needs to come into it is that there's several impactors to it, is that the bond market knows that right now, inflation's high, rates are high, recession's imminent. Therefore, in the future, we're going to have to see rates cut falling in the next three years. There's no way rates are going to keep at this current level for more than 18 to 24 months because the pressure on the economy is too high. Same here in Australia. But equities haven't priced that in yet. They haven't priced in that revenue line, which is slowing, happening on the earnings line and then going into the net profit line. That's what we're waiting to see. That's such a good description of Theoretically, <laughs> how yes. everybody is seeing it. It's such a tricky one, isn't it? I I do feel also that equity markets do seem to be obsessed with rates and seem to enthusiastically reprice on the suggestion that rates are going to be cut. Yeah. And you're like, guys, that's bad news because it means the economy's blown up. It's like, also a question of where. Is it right? just me? Yeah, no, and that you're right. So there's this belief that the when is going to be imminent. Now, again, the reason it's there is history, right? So if you go through the history looks and look at rate movements, whenever you've seen this level of hiking, the length of it is on average nine months. Now we are currently at 11 months on terms of that cycle and it's going to be longer than, than history shows. What also shows is that once the cycle has ended, the cut cycle is harder and faster. So if you look at what happened in the GFC, if you look at what happened in 2011, if you look at what happened going back into the 90s, and then you also look at what happened during COVID, when they cut, they cut hard and fast. It's a shock and awe. It's about not just taking the pressure off. It's basically blowing the valve out, right? It is completely about going, okay, 
we need movement to happen and fast. We need economic activity to happen fast because unemployment's rising. Businesses can't hire people because it's too expensive, blah, blah, blah. We've got an absolute you know, scenario where a lot of unemployed can't do what they need to do. We need to therefore get things moving. So they cut much harder. So the market knows this. Historically, that is what has happened. And it will probably happen this time around. The question that the market on equity side, I think, has got ahead of itself is I think it's coming very soon. And what has happened in the May minutes that came out in the last sort of couple of days and what happened in May at the start of the meeting here, the RBA is telling you very clearly that they're not saying that till 2025. Now, I know those of you out there will immediately disperse, but and try and jump through your, your podcast going, they were the same people that told us that they weren't going to remove rates till 2024. That's a fact. Completely agree with that. But it's also the same problem on the other side, which is they will do what they need to do for as long as it takes. And therefore, I don't think you can think about anything other than what happens in the next couple of months. Um, whereas markets are trying to say that by March next year, rates are going to start to fall. Even the bond market is telling you that as well. It's a fair argument. But again, inflation's a shocker. It's a massive genie that you can't really get back in the bottle that easily. And there are so many moving cogs to it that makes me nervous to be forecasting that idea. Yeah, one podcast we did probably three months ago actually was talking about how unlikely it was that central banks were going to be able to engineer that Goldilocks scenario where you get it perfectly right. Nothing breaks. We smooth on through this nice soft landing. Everybody's fine, you know, despite fantastic evidence. <laughs> Not managed that for anything else. Um, you know, we either get too hot or too cold uh, either way. And just that equity markets are so optimistic. Yeah. One of my favorite ever stories, and this is from several years ago, if anyone wants to go back and find it, it was with Graham Hand uh, on this podcast. He's the editor of First Links. Um, but he was previously a bond and treasury guy for Colonial First Aid, and he tells his story. Colonial First Aid was a major Australian fund manager at the time. That in 2006, he was doing all of the uh, credit side for the Colonial mm -hmm. Colonial First State Geared Share Fund. And so he was rolling paper every night. So he was having to go to the bond markets and get money on a daily basis. And he was mostly going to Europe. And he was sitting on the same floor as the equity guys. So he one night came into work the next morning and there was there was no money. For his side of the business, the bond guys were like, there's nothing for you. The markets have locked up and no one is lending under any circumstances, let alone to a uh, an Australian fund manager that, you know, we don't necessarily have great access to. Uh, and he was like, where's my money? Like, you know, come on, we'll get it done. And they were like, no, nah, it's not happening. And yet at the same, and this went on for months and months and months, that the bond side of the floor, literally, you know, sharing office space, the bond side of the floor are all in a state of absolute panic and crisis in 2006, early 2007. And the equity skies were on the same floor. And he said it was like they were off to the races. Everyone was having a marvellous time. They were making money and spending money. They were investing in all these things. And he was like, I am only sure of one thing. And that is someone's going to be really wrong. Yep. You can't have half your floor thinking the sky's falling in and the other side of the floor going, life is awesome, we've never been so profitable, and not have one group about to get into real trouble. And I think the other way to look at it is um, there's there's – there's okay, it's okay to be pessimistic and it's okay to be optimistic. And what I mean by that, and this is sort of getting into that behaviour thing, is that 
over pessimism can actually cloud your judgment and it can therefore make you miss opportunity. It can also make you do nothing. So non-action is almost as bad as, as doing overaction. And why I say that is that I think the happy medium is you need to understand that there will be coming a period where equities will get volatile. I mean, we're seeing it right now with the US debt ceiling, which happens every three or four years. And we get this sort of like little clean out that happens with it because it's always a little bit of this political jostling. But for me, it's more about an understanding of going sooner or later, there will come a point where the pressure on the consumer that's been put into place by central banks is going to come home to roost. So discretionary stocks are always that canary in the coal mine for me. Or you look at tech spaces in the States and techs had this incredible renaissance. I mean, okay, it got absolutely towed up last year. NASDAQ was down a third, right? It lost 33%. So there was always going to be some recovery. I mean, you look at Facebook and what's happened to that. People forget last year, Facebook lost 70%. And it's having a renaissance this year and stuff like 65, 70% as well. Yes, but it's coming from an incredibly low base and it's nowhere near where it was. Why I highlight those, they are the ones that are exposed. They are the ones exposed to the story that Gemma just talked about with bonds. They are on leverage. They are the ones that have borrowed to grow. And they are, for me, they're the ones to watch. Now, the reckoning in the States may have already happened. Again, the state view is that the Fed cannot keep going at the way it's going without A, causing recession, and then B, having to take the foot off the pedal because their dual mandate is not just maintaining inflation but also maintaining full employment. The catch is that employment hasn't moved either. And this is, again, where this right now is, is fascinating because from my view, all that we've done, what's going on right now in my view, is just bringing what was going to have happened in 2020, 2021 with COVID to now. Well, there's no way the world could have coped with a health crisis and an economic crisis all at one shot, but the economic crisis still has to play out. And I, I'm not, I hate that word. I hate crisis, but it's playing out now. Like all of the forward material that had to happen to make sure that we could still feel like we could buy food, still feel like that we could do things to get through COVID. It's coming home to roost now. And the fallout from that is still being felt. And I think that also needs to be very much part and parcel where we're at. And it will filter out. My thing is, though, there just needs to be a bit more time before it's it's finished. And equities, as I said to you, for me, US earnings are the answer. They always are. And US earnings at the moment, the reason they still look good is because inflation is still there. Unfortunately, if inflation is still there, the Fed's still in play. Therefore, the bond market knows that rates are going to go higher and that's what they're pricing. And that, that I think, is my answer for what's going on right now is that that's fine. You can actually still have exposure to all of that. You can have a good yield that you're getting from fixed income. People believe that fixed income debt, it is never going to die. It's how governments fund themselves. And, and you're getting, uh, you know, what is officially according to you know all the rating agencies, completely risk-free in the States, you're getting yield on their 10-year at about 5.5%. I mean, that's mental, absolutely mental. Um, and then you've got equities, which is your risk on the other side, which has had a fairly good start to the year. And there's no, you know, you should be have a long-term view on that. I just personally think at the moment that story that I've just put through is coming. And when it does... It'll just be a recalibration. I'm not telling you that it's going to be this scorched earth end of the world, which some people will love to tell you. It's not about that. Time will heal all. They will get through this. It's just the recalibration hasn't happened and I'm waiting to see earnings start to go backwards, which will tell me that it's finally here. It'll be a six to 12-month scenario and then 
you know, it'll be a release of the pressure valve and a way we will go with businesses being able to grow and therefore economies be able to grow as well. There's so much in that, but the I'm loving coming back to your your strength in behavioral finance now because it's so yeah. relevant in this environment. So one is how investors are behaving. But one thing about consumers, so oh, I'm doing some presentations with the ASX at the moment, and I love doing this where you show a chart of consumer sentiment. Yes. And then a show it's so good, isn't it? And then show a chart of retail spending, yeah. which is effectively how people feel versus what people do yep. with their own money. And the divergence is enormous, right? People are feeling it's the biggest in history. Yeah, it's yeah. The feeling the worst they've ever felt, worse than the GFC, worse than COVID, worse than everything. Like people are feeling really, really depressed about the And economy. that gap between retail sales and consumer confidence, you're right to point out, it is the biggest in history. So it's the lowest confidence we've ever had, yep. worse than COVID. Yeah. Perfect example. Yep. Our spending still yep. is above pre-COVID levels, like mental. Yes. We've had yes. 11 rate rises and we are still spending more than we were. And now that's not on price, that's on volume, right? Can, can are... I pose something to you? Because I'm yeah. really interested in your thoughts on this and I know you do the numbers properly. So one thing that I've been raising for a while, which I find is fascinating. So in the past, raising rates was incredibly good at crushing spending yep. because a meaningful proportion of the population and the ones who spend the most all had mortgages. And we have variable rate mortgages in Australia. So as soon as your mortgage goes up, you've got less money to spend on other stuff and you start to tighten your belt. Plus we would see rising unemployment. Mm -hmm. Now we have a far smaller proportion of the population who are homeowners at all. Of those, even fewer are mortgage holders because most homeowners now are older. They're over 50 and they yep. have paid off their mortgage in full or they've paid off most of it when rates were super low because they had the mortgage before COVID. And so the proportion who are at the margin is very small, but they are absolutely in trouble. So you've got a very small proportion of the population who are in real trouble, but you've also got the retirees who are suddenly getting some return on their cash for the first time in 15 years, and they've got more to spend than they've had in a decade. So is that maybe a driver? You're going to get in trouble. trouble. Go for it. So you're right to point that out. So at the moment, it's broken up into a third, a third, a third. So what I mean by that is a third, as you rightly point out, own their home outright. And this data comes from CoreLogic. It also comes from the RPA. About a third own their house outright. So interest rate rises do nothing to them. You're right to point that out because they have no pressure on them. They don't have any debt. The next third are renters. Um, they do feel it, um, but they're not feeling it in the same way that the other third homeowners are feeling. The caveat also this time around is that for the first time in almost living memory, there has been a 10% fall in fixed, uh, fixed rate mortgages to variable. So Australia has one of the highest variable mortgage holding markets on the planet. So we are behind Norway and we're just ahead of New Zealand. About normally 85, 90% of all mortgages are variable. Now it's sitting at about 80% of variable, 20% of fixed for obvious reasons because during COVID, 0.1 of 1%, and you were getting you know, fixed rate mortgages for two, three, and five years between 1.6 and 2%, depending on what you wanted to do and who you used. So, in answer to your question, 
that is why we talk about this mortgage cliff, those 880,000 people that are coming out of their fixed rate mortgages, which began in earnest this month in May. It hits a peak in June and July. So there is, again, stretching my memory, I can see the chart and I can see the numbers. It's something like 200 and something in June and about the same again in July. Um, so the majority of those 880,000 come out. So almost half. That will be the impact. And that's why you hear these stories on the media about, you know, we are going to see people not just seeing a double in their monthly mortgage repayments. We're talking about triple. And in some cases, possibly even four times. So it's it's just mind-blowing. That is going to have the impact. But you're right. If you look at it from a perspective of the whole population, it's not everybody and it's not enough. It's not putting the pressure where it should be. And unfortunately, I've always said this, and I've said this on your podcast as well, is that interest rates are a sledgehammer doing fine art. They are, you know, we need tweaking in the economy, but we've got this one blunt lever that we have to pull and it smashes everything. Um, and so you're right to point that out. The other thing, the behavior side of this comes into it and answer all the way back to your question about why are we still spending? So partly, yes, we still have a lot of disposable income, hasn't been eaten up. Not everybody's been hit with it yet, but it's coming like a freight train. The other thing is spending has been shown study after study to be something that you're in control of. Spending when you have chaos in your life is a control that you have. You have the ability to go and spend what you want. Credit is very easy even now. And that is what the studies show. You know, the keeping up with the Joneses effect is part of it. You spend because it's keeping up with the lifestyle you want or it's also that thing. It's a also biologically, so a physiological response, it creates dopamine. And it's not actually the purchase itself. It's the anticipation of the purchase that actually leads to you to do this. So all of that feeds into it is that right now, economics seems bad, high inflation, high interest rates. It's the new version of COVID, right? We were locked up, possibility of having a disease that could really, really impact your life or it could even kill you, blah, blah, blah. Spending went through the roof you're in control of it. So in my view, it's the behavior and also the economics are playing out in that space. And for me, July, August, September is where I think this is going to be a really interesting period where you're going to hear the individual horror stories. That's not, I mean, they're, they're horrible and they always are. That's not what I'm looking at. It's the population response and whether or not you're, you do actually start to see a marketed change in people's behavior that needs to happen to slow inflation to therefore allow the RBA to release the handbrake. Yeah, it feels like such a complex scenario. And I do feel the underlying composition of the population and their financial situation is dramatically different to the 80s and 90s and oh, definitely. The, the historical periods when inflation was an issue. Yeah. So back when you could break the back of it pretty sharpish by just putting everyone under enormous mortgage pressure, now you've got... Some people yeah. desperately, desperately in trouble. And then so I wondered if the sentiment issue might be that you've got a third of the population for whom higher rates is going to have no impact or improve their situation, right? They are. And if, not only that, super is part of that problem as well. well no, that's not- what I was gonna say. If my if my allocated pension has a third of its it was probably 50% allocated to term deposits and fixed income now because I have yeah. to be able to generate an income. And I'm now getting 5% where I used to get two. I have more money to spend. Yeah. And not only that, the, the the reason this, and I said before to your last question that I was going to get in trouble, my trouble <laughs> part is this is where federal government needs to have the backbone, and that's the correct term, 
to actually step in and help as well. Um, and what I mean by that, and this is going to get your listeners so angry, considering this is for self-managed super funds as well. I have a very big view that super should be under review about how it's taxed. Because at the moment, obviously, if you retire, you are tax-free. And that's fair. That is the policy. I think what's forgotten, though, about what your super is, it's your pension, right? It is there to be used. It is there to be drawn upon. Now, there are policies that force you to do that. I get that. But it actually should probably be higher. Not only that, and this is where I'm going to get in super trouble, and I'm really sorry if you don't like hearing this, but it needs to be said because it's coming like a freight train. The Once you hit 65 and you retire and you enter the tax-free th- period, there has to be an argument to be made that, again, some of that needs to have some tax on it. And in my view, it's actually not the balance, which is what they're currently going down. It should be on the earnings. Now, it can't be like your personal income. That's clear. It's more if you were to have a scale of 10, 15, 20, 25 on earnings of, you know, if your super fund is earning you $75,000 a year, that's the equivalent of somebody earning about 120K uh, once you take their tax out. And that's a that's a very, very good livable wage. So once you go above that, you know, if your earnings are above 75, then maybe a 10% earnings tax on that. And then once you get to 120 and so on and so forth, it can't be the same. I get that, but it actually create two things. First and foremost, I know that'll be making you think about that's my, that's my money. Well, yes, it is. But so is your super balance. Your balance needs to be touched. Secondly, it would actually be a good allocation of capital to other markets. Because if you're retired, you're not actually having a personal income tax. Now a stage three tax comes in. Realistically, if you're earning $45,000 or more, you're going to be taxed at 30% all the way up to 200000 Now, you're going to have to have an incredible super balance or in personal investments to be earning more than 200000 in income. And that's the next thing is that it actually would be beneficial for markets to have not so much money allocated to super. And I know that's a weird thing to say, but it would actually therefore start to see money flowing to new innovations, new technologies. We keep hearing about productivity. Well, part of that is also capital flow. So I know I've gone off a complete tangent for you there, Gemma, but it's a debate that has to start happening because what we saw in the budget last week is that 47.5% of the tax revenue that the federal government takes is personal income tax. That is unsustainable considering that we have an aging population and less and less people contributing to that. Tax has to expand in other places. They clearly don't want to go down things like expanding the GST. Super's the one and watch that space. So this may not ever have been your feel, but it was mine. I was sitting there on budget night in 2006 looking at the changes to super from when we had exactly the model you've just described, when we had reasonable benefit limits and we had uh, tax on earnings and anything you withdrew, you'd get a rebate up to the blah, 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 right? Um, And so there was was a very healthy proportion of the population employed as financial planners, helping people understand it because it was super complex. Uh, And my job was explaining it to planners so they could explain it to their clients Mm. uh, and help them with strategies and so on. Uh, And they scrapped all of that and made it tax-free over 60 on withdrawals and everything was, it was just an astonishing change. And they did three years worth of modeling. And I remember going, I feel like that's inadequate, but maybe that was just me. (laughs) And and again, I don't want to say it because I'm going to get in trouble, but you're also talking about the three biggest costs on the budget, healthcare, aged care, and welfare. And the cohort, obviously over 65, 
just stating facts are the ones that have the most touch points with those three points and that therefore comes out of the government. So again, nobody likes paying tax, but we live in this beautiful country and we need to pay to live here. Um, and that, you know, that is what is coming. And I know, you know, these people have paid tax their entire life. If you think about it, your kids and your grandkids will probably pay tax at every single point of their working life, retired life until unfortunately they die. That is the way we're going for the services that we demand that we want to have. Um, and again, I think that's the fascinating thing about what's going on right now also with the debate in markets is, is that they are clearly also asking the question that taxation is there. We're seeing it in oil and gas and these tweaks at the, at the margins. Sooner or later, somebody will take the bull by the horns and actually do something. The big challenge is politically, and I don't envy them that task at all. As I said, like it, it would be a return, it would be back to the future, right? It's, it would be going back to how the model used to work, but uh, I wouldn't want to be the one trying to get it through. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> or be up for election if I did it, right? Definitely yes. not. It was not going to happen this time around. It has to go to an election, right? So oh. that, 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 that it has to get past the people, but that yeah. would be my Quite the challenge, quite the challenge. Mm -hmm. Coming back to what you do about this when you're an investor mm -hmm. and also an individual. So you're in a scenario where bond markets are telling you things are about to get really bad. Equity markets are holding up extraordinarily well, all things considered, right? Like in Australia, we're not at our all-time highs, but we're not too far off. US, it's come back off its all-time highs, but its all-time highs were absolutely mental yes, uh, in were. terms of PEs and everything else from a historical perspective. How do you look at this as an investor and manage your behaviour because you've got the psychological component there too yep. to find the narrow path to not cataclysmic collapse on either side? I'm going to take the behaviour part first because I think it's the way to answer that question because you're right. The Taking the absolute pessimistic world-ending view is very easy and you know somewhat makes sense. Um, so first and foremost, and I'm trying not to be airy-fairy about this because I just – economics, one of the key fundamentals of economics is the concept of scarcity, right, that we have a finite amount of resources. The key issue with scarcity as a thought process is that it immediately – it impinges your ability to think long-term. It impinges your ability to actually see the bigger picture. Um, scarcity works on a short-term mindset because you can therefore sit there and go, right, I only have this amount. I need to worry about tomorrow's dollar for my bills, tomorrow's dollar for living, and today what I have. But it doesn't allow you to think bigger. It doesn't allow you to think long-term. Everything that you and I have just spoken about for the last 45 minutes, Gemma, has been around what's going on in the next six months. In markets, that's a microsecond of time. I mean, you look at a Warren Buffett that everybody likes to pin up, and that's fair enough. The guy's been investing for 72 years, and over almost 90% of his total wealth has happened in the last 15 years, right? So, this is this is how you evaluate time. And so, why I say that, getting back to my scarcity thing, if you can change your mindset from the idea that actually I do have more money than I realize I have an, a, the word is not necessarily abundance. I have a much larger position than I realize I am actually able to sustain my today, pay the bills that I have, even with the higher interest rates that I have now going through, it might not be as much as what it was this time last year or during peak of COVID, but I still have some. And so I'm therefore going back to it. I need to think about and allocate to the idea of tomorrow 
And tomorrow could be five to seven years away and beyond. That's you know what super's for as well. What's the next 10, 15, 20, or the Warren Buffett scenario 70 years going to look like? And therefore, I want exposure to several things. I still want exposure, maybe not as much as I had this time last year, to growth. I'm still looking at, you know, what is the future? Uh, we know that energy security is is one of those, and that gets me excited because I actually am optimistic about what energy future looks like. It's going to be better than what it is now. I know some people will argue against that, but it will be. There's no doubt that things like nickel, things like lithium are going to be part of it. Hydrogen, although it's unproven, will probably be part of it. Renewable energies is getting more and more efficient as it goes. So that's that's you know how I look. You then look at I need to still have exposure for tomorrow and tomorrow could be tomorrow. So fixed income is part of it. And yes, it is telling you scorched earth. But if you look at floating notes and look at floating markets in that space, it's really been a really lucrative time. Um, It's been where I've seen a lot of people I speak to finally move towards. I'm like, you need to think about it for a reason. Again, as I said to you, if you look at a two-year bond, you're getting a yield of in Australia of three and a half percent. And it's trading at 99, uh, 99.50. So you've got 50 cents capital gains in two years' time. Um, and for me, that that's there's an attraction to that because it's also safeguards the mistake, and it will be a mistake that will probably happen in the interim in my, my long-term growth view. So as I said, if I can think that I've got the money that I have now to get through for my bills... I have money for tomorrow that is paying me an income through my investments in fixed income and then my long-term opportunities. And that's what it is for what I want my money to do, which is to give me the time to do what I want, when I want. That growth profile that comes from investing in, in those spaces will come home to roost in the next 10 years. I know that. I've just got to remember that history tells me that that will happen and that if I can have that grateful abundance mindset away from the pessimistic scarcity mindset i can set my money up so that i'm ready for all of those scenarios to take place because they will happen i don't know when but they will um i will be wrong the market always gets me wrong but in the long term i know i'll be right and that's that's how i'm setting things up Gemma. that's such a helpful way of looking at it for those moments when you think God, it's going to get really hard. And clearly the broader population is feeling that way right now. We know that from consumer sentiment, from confidence, people are pretty nervous. And it's worth noting also business confidence has turned right down too. So the same applies if you are in business looking forward and through into the future and how you kind of position yourself. Evan, you have learned so much from writing your book. So it is worth sending people to that. You can tell people a little bit about it. And you and your team publish amazing insights and ideas for investors. You always have amazing things to say. You don't pull your punches, which is awesome. (laughs) Where do people go to find out more about you and what you're working on along with tax policy? Yeah, along with tax policy. So my book, you can find it at all online good shops. So Amazon, uh, Booktopia, et cetera. You can still find it at Dimmix. Um, It's called Mind Over Money. As I said, it's... More and more I go through this, the more and more I've realized that I just am always and constantly learning um, about how to get better. Because, you know, when I first started this, and that was over 18 years ago when I was 20, um, I, you know, you do think you know. And that old adage that, you know, you hear from older people that you don't, 
and you probably work out that you don't know as much as you go further. Unfortunately, it's true. It's really hard to say, but it's probably true. And that's been my learning curve. Is And what I mean by that is that it's embracing what you do and don't know. It's embracing the understanding that markets are and will help you get what you want out of your life going forward. And I do truly believe that. What I mean by that is that for me, and I talk about this in my book, if you do read it, for me, I just want to gain time. I want to have the ability to do what I want, when I want, and money helps me do that, right? And I, I some people will not like that, but you need to be honest about yourself and actually say money is not necessarily the root of all evil. It is there to help you and your investments are absolutely there to help you. That's my learning. And that's that's sort of what I want to talk about with it. The other thing is, as I said to you, it's all economics is, all markets are, it's just what we do as a group in one direction or another, right? So it's the study of why is this moving up and this moving down? I mean, again, you look at GameStop from 2021. It's when we as a group of people thought that what was happening was something to be involved with, even though, you know, the research suggests it wasn't, but we did it. We did it anyway. You know, why, as I said at the start of this podcast, why are we still spending as a, as a whole collective group of people? We're still doing it. That's what economics is. It's the study of us. It's why I love it. It's why I love the behavior side of it as well. And then the feed that that gets into to markets and, and what that therefore means about why we're heading in certain ways um, in, in, in its space. And, and so that's, that's what I do. That's what I love. That's how I go about doing what I do. It's what it's in the book. And, you know, you can find me also at InvestSmart as well. And it's what I talk about for them and and everything in between. And, and as always, Gemma, I, I love, and you can hear, I talk about it to the cows come home. And, and thank you again, as always, for giving me the opportunity to talk my head off on something I probably don't need to. The joy of a podcast, there's no time constraints. And it's one of the reasons I love listening to them, actually. You get to hear what people really think. It's yeah. not a soundbite. People can genuinely expound on a topic that they know so incredibly well. Evan, you know this so well, and I love uh, getting your thoughts on so many different things. Let's see how it all plays out because this bond equities thing I find so fascinating. Yeah. And as yeah. I said to you, when it proves you wrong, and I think this needs to be put out there to finish this up because it's going to prove me wrong too, right? Embrace that. And, and what I mean by that is that I've got it. My diversification set me up to accept the mistakes will actually help me in the future. So I might be wrong on equities right now, and I'm not short them. I've still got a fair reasonable exposure, but I know I'm going to be wrong pretty soon. And bonds are probably going to prove me right, inverted commas. Or it could be the other way around. It doesn't matter. I've positioned myself so that my mistake won't hurt. That I think is the is the key answer to your question about what's going to play out is that one of them is going to be proven wrong and it's going to prove me wrong and that's fine, but I know that I'm ready for that and I know that I'm ready for when it does flip and it proves me right. That's 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 the time factor that comes with investing. You've just given me the headline, right? Position yeah, yourself so. <laughs> so the mistake won't hurt. I yeah, love that exactly so right. much. And that's what it is. Position yourself so the mistake, because everyone makes mistakes. Every single person. Warren Buffett will openly tell you he makes mistakes all the time. Everyone makes them. That's part and parcel of human nature. Evan Lucas from InvestMart, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you as always, Gemma. Thank you so much for listening. Also, I hope you got so much out of this one. It's always fun. As always, we love hearing from you. We know what you like to listen to and where you get the most uh, intelligent insights. We love your feedback. And we also want to know what you want to hear more about. So please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, And I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. 
To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.